The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.19, starting in verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trade and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companion in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city of of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. The grass withers 
and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, as we hear your word spoken to our ears and to our hearts, we do ask, Father, that you would work in our hearts. Today, as we see this story and this account of the threat of the gospel to our hearts. Father, would you be at work in stirring our hearts to see our idols? To see the very things that we worship that is not you? We ask, Lord, that you, by your work and by your perseverance, would go after those idols with the gospel. And as you go after them, may we find once again where our source of peace and hope and value is. It's in your Son, Jesus. We pray all of this in His name. Amen. My wife and I, we didn't say a word for about a minute. A few weeks ago, we had our third annual trip to Dauphin Island, which is in Alabama. And this year was unique to past years. Because this year, for the first several days, the waters of the ocean were remarkably calmer than they usually are. I have a picture. I just want to show you the view from next to our house. You see, it's just, it's really calm waters. And that was, that's unique. Usually the waves are crashing pretty consistently. And I look forward uh, to this trip every year. Because as I cross over the long bridge that leads into the island... There's this promise of peace and serenity now. It's right there. And here on the first morning of our trip, as my wife and I stood arm in arm on the deck of our house rental, looking out over these calm waters, we noticed something. And the promise of peace was interrupted with one word, that both my wife and I did not want to say out loud. Shark. As the word shark broke the silence, so too did our promise of a peaceful trip get broken with the soundtrack of Jaws. While the waters were still lapping, our thoughts were crashing with worst-case scenarios. The beach no longer promised peace. It contained threat, threat to our safety, possibly even threat to our very lives. I'm being a little extreme. The sharks were like this big, just so you know. The same was true for the people of Ephesus. A threat was lurking and swimming around underneath their seemingly peaceful lives. And it began with this man, Paul, who was preaching about another man, Jesus, who he claimed had all authority and power and who had come to bring peace between God and man. And today we see what happens when a faithful minister of the gospel preaches for the good news of Jesus and at the same time preaching completely against the idols of the day. When you hear the word idol, what images or thoughts come to mind? 
Simon Cowell or Ryan Seacrest. A little wood pendant that survivor contestants wear around their neck to keep from getting eliminated. Uneducated and naive people ridiculously bowing down to a statue of marble. When you hear this story about the people of Ephesus, you may be quick to dismiss their idol worship as a thing of the past. But we believe that the Word of God is timeless. And so we have to believe this account from Acts has great relevance to us. If Paul was going after the idols in Asia as he was preaching the gospel, was he really going after the little silver shrines of this goddess Artemis? Later in the passage, as the town clerk reminds us, it appears that Paul and his fellow missionaries have actually been fairly respectful of the people's goddess, Artemis. Because Artemis was not the problem. The human heart was and is the problem. Give us one second away from the grace of God, and in one second, we will find something other than God to put our trust in. God knows us so well. He knows that left without His preservation of grace, we will always choose not God. The law of God shows us that. If we think of the Ten Commandments as progressive, meaning that if you follow the first commandment, the remaining nine would follow suit. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. And Martin Luther comments that this commandment is first because every other law-breaking from murder to adultery to stealing to coveting stems from choosing not God to be our God. Romans 1.25 shows us this bent we have in talking about our idolatrous hearts saying we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And Paul, throughout his gospel preaching ministry, was waging war against the sharks, the idols that lay beneath our seemingly peaceful waters by holding them up to the light of the glory of God. So what is an idol? Let me give you a simple definition, and there's a lot of them. But I wanted to give you my simple definition. An idol is anything even a good thing that plays the role of God by promising peace and in exchange for our worship steals life. Say that again. An idol is anything, even a good thing, that plays the role of God by promising peace and in exchange for our worship steals life. The funny thing is that idols really are not always living things. Scripture reminds us of that in passages like Isaiah 44, which talks about a piece of wood and how a man burns half of it in the fire to keep himself warm and make his meal, and the other half he makes 
into a god, his idol, and falls down to worship it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But let me give you some modern day examples. Technology, a good thing, good thing, promises to make our life simpler and more peaceful. So we dedicate our resources and our attention to it. And before long, we're bowing down to it and it's sucking the very life from us as our kids play on the playground or our spouse tries to talk to us about their day. Bow down to it. Speaking of idols, our children. Blessings from the Lord. They offer us this opportunity to become what we never were. So we pour more and more of our attention into them, making sure they're the best reflections of us that they could possibly be. We sign them up for sports or piano lessons at the age of three. We practice what Tony Reinke calls sharenting, where we get as many pictures or videos of them as possible, doing whatever it is that kids do, playing on the playground or scoring a goal or performing their first piano sonata, not just for our own enjoyment, but to post it on social media so that the watching world could feed in us a sense of peace as they remark, what good kids you have. Anything can become an idol. Even worship can become idol worship. We might try to recreate moments of peace in our time with God by listening to that worship song over and over again, or that sermon over and over again, or praying that prayer until it generates in us a return back to some sort of state of calm all the while ignoring the God to who the song or the prayer or the sermon was directed. How how do these good things like technology or our children or even worship itself become ultimate or God things? We invite good things to take a God role because of the offer that these things promise us. And that offer is peace. Peace. A promise of peace. The absence of conflict. The freedom from disturbance. The preservation of our life. And the people of Ephesus. And the people of Jacob's Well. And the people of Green Bay. We believe these idols will deliver on their promise of peace. And so we bow down. And for a time, we might believe these idols do have the ability to deliver on their promise. Maybe for a few minutes, or a few weeks, or even a few years, it seems like all is right with our world. But the very thing that an idol offers is the very thing that it takes from us. Idols rob us of life. How do they do that? They begin to consume 
our minds and our time, our paychecks. They disrupt our sleep and our schedules. And they distract us from the people around us. And certainly they distract us from the God who made us. So Paul is pressing into the idols of Ephesus and Asia by saying the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only place where peace is found. So it's imperative that we rage war against the idols of our heart and of our culture. So how? How do we war against these idols? First, we really need to be preaching to ourselves and experiencing peace in our performance. Second, we need to discover that there is peace in our position. And finally, we need to look to the only one who can preserve us and give us peace. First, as we war against the idols around us and in us, we need to experience peace in our performance. Initially, that might sound a little strange, but I'll explain. Look, look with me at verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance. I love Luke's language. He loves to add those little. So a huge disturbance concerning the way. The way is basically shorthand for Christianity, for following Jesus. And Paul's gospel preaching and the response of these new Jesus followers has made a huge impact on this city and on this region. So much so that it's making a dent on the culture, specifically on a man like Demetrius, whose manufacturing company's performance is starting to become threatened as a result of these followers of the way. And he's not alone. There are other union members who are going to be taking a hit on their performance. If Demetrius' company's not doing well, their company's not going to be doing well. And if they're not doing well, then there goes our wealth, our security, our peace. So what is it that Paul is preaching so convincingly that's affecting all of these companies' performance? It's found in verse 26. He's saying, God's made with hands are not God's. It's like saying to the manufacturer of the typewriter or the Walkman for any of you who can remember such things, your product is completely useless. It serves absolutely no purpose to you. But what were these handheld gods, these statuettes of Artemis, what was their purpose? Well, it's all about personal performance. Self-salvation. Do-it-yourself religion. Artis, Artemis, excuse me, specifically was the goddess of nature. Just like the mother nature of the time. She controlled rain. She nourished the crops. She fed the cattle. So plea to her. Sacrifice to her. Do whatever you can to get her attention. And then she may just continue to let us thrive and let us live. And when the rain started falling, guess what also came to those bowing down to her and pleading before her statuette? A sense of peace. A confidence that because we sought her out, 
We pled our case. We performed well for her. We're going to be okay. You may be thinking the image of someone bowing down before a statuette sounds almost ludicrous. But like I was saying, Artemis was not the problem. She became the representation, the mascot, the figurehead for things like prosperity or wealth or security or comfort. Anything that validates our performance as human beings gives us a sense of peace. Saying, we've done enough to make things okay. But it's a false peace. Because what happens when it's been a week and there's no rain? Better get back on the treadmill of bowing down to Artemis. Over the past several weeks, with this call from the Lord to plant a church on the east side of Green Bay. I say past several weeks. I said months. Maybe I said months. It's been a long time. I have been confronted almost daily with my idols as I consider my own performance as a pastor. If I perform well, then people will want to follow or even stay with the church plant. Because people follow or stay with the church plant because of my performance, guess what? I have a paycheck. If I have a paycheck, then we can have a home to live in and food on the table. If we have a home to live in and food on the table, then we're okay. Then we're okay. And so, I begin to obsess about my performance. How am I doing at being authentic? How am I doing at being gospel-centered, theologically precise, winsome, convincing, compassionate, commanding, productive, timely, relevant, likable, humble? The performance evaluations in my brain can go on and on. And the peace that the idol of people's approval originally offered by maybe hearing a simple, good job, Chad, becomes a treadmill of having to maintain my approval ratings. What Paul was preaching with his gospel message throughout Asia, well, it's not found in this particular passage. It's found throughout the rest of his writings. What he was communicating was this. Your performance before God has absolutely no bearing on Him saving you. I need to repeat this message to myself right now. Your performance before God has absolutely no bearing on Him saving you. None. Ever. Period. The God in your hand whether an iPhone, or a wallet, or a protein shake, or a report card, or a barbell, or a mirror, or your consistent prayer journal or Bible reading checklist, or anything that validates your performance and gives you a temporary sense of peace that you're doing okay is no God at all. The only source of peace in our performance is completely and solely based on the perfection of Jesus Christ. What are your handmade or homemade measures of peace? What is it in your life that whispers that false assurance that you're good, you're doing fine, you're good? As you answer that, 
you may find an idol? Is it the performance-based righteousness that you've never gotten a speeding ticket? Then driving home from Alabama, you get clocked for doing 83 in a 55? Oh. Remember, preach the sermon to yourself, Chad. It's not about your performance. Is it that your spouse is saying all the right things at the party and and really reflecting well on you? Is it that your children are making the honor roll? Is it the positive feedback that you receive about your good cooking, your good looks, your wise counsel, your work ethic, your well-behaved family, your orderly finances, or your profit margin? All of these are gifts of God. But none of these can bring peace with God. They cannot save you. These gods made with hands are no gods at all. The peace of our performance comes when we acknowledge and surrender to the idea that it's not up to me and it never was. He says of us only what He says of Christ when He speaks to us about our performance. This is my son. This is my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. All because of Christ. So how else do we wage war against the idols besides resting in Christ's perfect performance? We need to discover peace in our position. As Demetrius The silversmith gathers his fellow craftsmen and calls together a union meeting. He knows that they aren't allowed enough voice to convince the people of Ephesus that this gospel disturbance of the peace is a problem. So what does he do? He plays the position card. Notice what he says in verse 27. He says, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, which disrepute basically means that no one likes how they're performing. But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Ephesus was in an interesting position as a city, and Paul was uber-intentional about reaching Ephesus with the gospel because he knew they were right smack dab in the middle of trade routes between the east and the west. This was a position of influence, Ephesus was. And Ephesus also had within it the great temple of Artemis, which was named as one of the seven wonders of the world, with a megachurch or stadium capacity of between 25 to 50,000 people it could hold. This structure could hold 25 to 50,000 people. It's the ancient day big house. This temple... There's a replica of it that's not the actual temple. Became a place where people from all over Asia in the ancient world would pilgrimage to pay homage and plead help from Artemis. And Artemis and her great temple were of the Ephesians. This is ours. As the people cry out in verses 28 and 34. It was their claim to fame and also their claim to security as a city. Take the big house away. And where would they be? It's like taking Lambeau Field out of Green Bay. Where would we as a city be? It would rock our city. 
Demetrius stirs up the mob to believe that Paul and his Christian followers are posing a threat to their great position as a city and people. And they gather at this theater. Let's show you a picture with its ancient ruins, but this theater is where they're gathering. Some not even knowing why they're there. I love that line. They're, they're just sitting there like, what's going on? Okay, we're here, we're here. And they're there to shout, we're number one, we're number one, we're number one. For two hours, they screamed, not wanting to listen to anyone except themselves saying, we're number one, la, 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 only wanting to assure themselves of their powerful position. And Paul's friends, including key political leaders whom Paul befriended, know how important this position was to the people of the city. They know that they would kill anyone who dared threaten it. And so they keep Paul away to preserve his life. In counseling, I'll give away one of my secrets. In counseling, I look for idols in how people respond and react. If you want to know what I'm thinking, it's this. When an idol is getting threatened, look for strong emotion, usually intense anger or uncontrollable sadness. Do you see it here in Ephesus? Their position of security as a city was getting threatened. And there you see strong emotion. Two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But Paul's gospel message was instead promoting a position that makes the temple of Artemis look like White Castle. You may not know White Castle. Look like the pancake place. I don't know, some place that's just really not that, not that appealing. Although the pancake place is pretty good. And he reminds the Ephesus, the Ephesians in his letter to them of their true position in Christ. It's not based on this temple or this city. He says in Ephesians 2, 5-6, By grace you have been saved, not based on your performance. And God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Talk about a remarkable position. We are raised with Christ through His resurrection and seated with Him in the most glorious worship space available, His very presence. I showed you a replica of the temple. Here's what stands today of their claim to fame. The greatest wonder of the world now stands in ruins. Here is the result of the temple cry. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Someday, the big house or Lambeau Field will be in the same shape. And the words, go pack go, that we scream for three hours on a Sunday afternoon will be, in light of standing in the presence of our Lord, kind of embarrassing. Friends, I have good news for each one of us. We are dust. 
Our position on this earth is so temporary. Our position in our job or in our family or in our community or on this earth, it's so temporary. And it could be taken from us in an instant. How many of us find peace or comfort in our standing or position? For those of us who have lost our position in a job, you can see very clearly how God exposes that idol when you lose your job. For those of us whose children have left the nest, you may feel this incredible letdown. For those who have moved from a church where you were known well and suddenly no one knows your name. Or if you're young, you're vying to be noticed and promoted and position yourself accordingly. And then for retired folks, you may question your position in society as you're often seen as a little less useful. Friends, we cannot find peace in any temporary positions. The only peace we will find is in what Paul again communicates to the Ephesians. Our position is that we are seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you love this position more than any other position the world could offer you? Grab hold of it. It's offered to you in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Our very lives can be shouting, great is the Lord and worthy to be praised because we know where our undeserved position lies. It's with Him forever. As we find peace, not only in Christ's performance and the position that He gives to us, the final tactic in waging war against our idols is this. We need to look to Him as being the preserver of our peace. The last part of this passage, it's an interesting one because it seems, almost, it seems almost anticlimactic when you read it. Like it's leading up to this big conclusion. And Demetrius takes this spark and turns it into this big fire. And in the center of Ephesus, there's this chaos. Thousands of people shouting. And then enters this town clerk. When I, when I hear that term... I have a little bit of a stereotypical image, and I know it's not accurate, but like of a guy with horn-rimmed glasses kind of taped up, grabbing his clipboard and like saying in like a real nasally voice, I'm, I'm sorry, I know Artemis and Ephesus are a big deal to you, but if you have a concern about the ways in which Paul and his friends have conducted himself, please take these forms and fill them out in triplicate according to Article 2, Section 3, Paragraph 1, which says that no public expression of complaint may be made without the knowledge of the appropriate justices who have reviewed your complaint and deemed it legitimate. Thank you for coming. Goodbye. And the crowd lets out this collective, oh, and everyone files out in disappointment. It seems like there was this great opportunity for Paul to preach the gospel. After all, there's a crowd of thousands gathered. But instead, at the end of this passage, we see in chapter 20, verse 1, this conclusion. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said, Farewell. 
and departed for Macedonia. Instead of Paul calling together the elders of Ephesus and saying, okay, how do we strategize about what to do with this conflict that we just experienced? He instead encourages them. What is Paul so encouraged about? This looks like a mess. I believe Paul is encouraged because he knows that where idols are being threatened, the gospel message is taking root. He is confident that Christ is the preserver of the peace. And he's confident that Christ is at work in the hearts of the people of Asia. And so he can leave with confidence and assurance that he who began this good work will be faithful to finish it. Friends, if the things in your life that are outside of Jesus, that once promised you peace, are no longer providing the peace they once promised, can I encourage you? Because Christ the preserver of your peace is very much at work in your heart. Your performance, whether it be on the playground or in the classroom or in the boardroom or in the living room or in the bedroom, cannot give you peace. Only Christ can. And your position, whether it be your title or your promotion, or you're being lovable, or attractive, or you're being great, or an expert on the subject, or you're measuring yourselves better than the rest, that cannot give you peace. Only Christ can. Let's let Him wage war against anything that has taken His position as a preserver of the peace. And if you're in the middle of a season of anxiety, or doubt, or struggle, or pain, or depression. Might I encourage you that maybe, just maybe, God may be working to destroy an idol of your heart. About two weeks after I started at Jacob's Well, we went on an elder retreat to talk about big, hairy, audacious goals for the church. And we wrote down on an index card some of the BHAGs we had for the church. Big, hairy, audacious goals. That's what a BHAG is. Some of the BHAGs we had for the church. And I remember, I remember my answer distinctly. And I remember getting a little bit of a strange look from most of the guys in the room. Probably because my goal was not easily measurable. But my BHAG was that God would use Jacob's well to pose a serious gospel threat to the idols of Green Bay, Wisconsin. How would we as a church know, like Paul encouraged his disciples, that Christ was at work in waging war against the idols of our community? Like Paul, we the people of God need to continue to preach the gospel message of peace. That our salvation is found never in our performance, but only in His. And as we preach that, guess what we're going to see? Idols start to fall.
Let's preach with confidence to the people around us, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family, that our hope is never found in our position in the world or in Green Bay, but rather our position in heaven. And watch idols start to fall. And as we see idols threatened in our own heart and in the people of Green Bay who may even get upset with the offensiveness, not of us, but of the claims of Christianity, let's encourage one another that Christ is very much at work in finishing the big, hairy, audacious goal that He started here. Let's pray. Father, You know my heart. And You know it's an idle factory You know it will produce in moments anything, anything to worship. But Father, You are the preserver of our peace. And You go after those idols because You love us. You go after them and You say, it's not because of Your performance that I love You. It's because I love You. And You go after idols and You say, it's not how high or low You rank. Your position is in heaven. Continue to protect our hearts to see that You are our preserver of the peace. May our lives continue to be grounded and founded on Your performance and the position that You gave us, undeserving people, to be able to live eternally with You. And as we reflect on that, we can sing and shout with confidence. It is well with my soul. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We take this time.